which brings me directly to our first speaker, Richard McEwen, who graduated from ecology at, at Edinburgh University, then spent 15 years managing a small Scottish estate and studying the works of Mudin. I'm going to need some help on this. Muyidin ibn Arabi, a renowned Andalusian scholar and mystic, before he returned to postgraduate studies in soil science and uh, at Reading University, and then eventually back to Australia, moving to Australia in 1988. Since 1989, he's worked in soil research and education. He's currently a senior research scientist with the Victorian government based in Bendigo. Richard. Thank you. I brought a prop. <laughs> I'm much more used to this. Well, I won't do much with it. It's actually here for a reason because we're, we're talking about some heroes. When I was a kid, I um, was a Boy Scout, as many people were of my generation. And Robert Falcon Scott, seemed to me like a great hero to have. Subsequently, in reading about that expedition, which was really mildly a cock-up, very poor teamwork, a lot of rivalry, a lot of arrogance, and poor planning, and uh, didn't strike me that he was actually somebody you want to follow in the footsteps of, though we all have our own kind of South Pole ambitions, I guess. You know, we, we set out with things we want to achieve in our lives. And in my uh, ending up as a soil scientist, so it's kind of accidental. I don't think I was aiming for the, the South Pole of soil science, but I, I ended up there. A much more worthy hero is Shackleton. Sha Ernest Shackleton went with Scott to the, on the first expedition in 1902-03. Uh, Scott was Royal Navy, and Shackleton was Merchant Navy, and Scott had very little respect or time for Shackleton, but Shackleton was actually a much better and able planner and much more loved by his men. His expedition later also failed in terms of its objective. You know, the, 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 sh the ship sank and the men managed to get to Elephant Island and they were holed up there for several months while Scott and a few others, other, Shackleton and a few others got to Georgia and crossed the island. I think only one other person has actually managed to do what they did and got help and returned and saved them. But the one thing that, that Shackleton did, which, which I really admire him for, when they had to salvage materials from the ship and go to Elephant Island, each man was allowed two pounds weight, except for Leonard Hussey, the meteorologist, who was encouraged to take his banjo <laughs> because it would cheer up the men and it weighed 12 pounds. So. He's kind of my hero because it brings some kind of diversity into all of this scientific pursuit. So, I did try to script something for, for today. I don't normally script anything. I rely on a PowerPoint slides and I, they provoke me to say things. So I'm making this up as I go along. I've got some other material here that would be good. They're words other people have written that I think are really worth hearing and they're ones that have inspired me and on my science journey. But to start with, I want to read a Michael Lernig poem because it kind of sums me up too. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel. 
Let it free, and it will be a path on which to travel. So my path began on the journey that I've ended up in, pretty much in a tree when I was about eight years old, I think. And there's a tree I used to retreat to very regularly. It was a beech tree. And I'd sit there, and I'd watch the leaves, and I'd listen to birds. When they come out of the tree, and I'd go back into the house, and my dad would come home from the office, and he would grumble about what an awful day it had been, and how so-and-so was this, that, and the other, and the firm was going down the tubes. And I looked at him, and he was really my, my role model for thinking about what I would do as an adult. And I didn't want to spend my adultery in that kind of behavior. <laughs> anyway, adulthood, as you know. So I was scheming, I thought, how can I get to, you know, what can I do, you know, as a grown-up that will allow me to be, you know, sitting in a tree listening to birds or out, you know, getting close to nature. And so connectedness to nature was always my desire. By the time I came to go to university, Rachel Carson had just published Silent Spring, you know, the, the tale of the bird life disappearing because of pesticide effect. And I received that as a prize at school in my last year at school, the prize was for the most creative piece of artwork. And the piece of artwork was a three-dimensional poem about life. And so I was starting from a rather unconventional base to become a scientist. But I went to university in, in Edinburgh. They had an ecology degree. It had just started three years previously. It was the only place in Western Europe that did anything like this. And I thought, wonderful, I can go there and I can meet the, the people who really know this science and know the state of the planet and what's happening to it and why we should really do something about it. And you know, it was the biggest intellectual disappointment of my life. <laughs> I, I didn't pass my second year exams. I found there were other things that I needed to do besides go to class. And I spent a year working in the Forestry Commission contemplating my lot. I was very close to trees and I was working in cold, wet drains on peat moors and, and thinking about how, you know, how did I end up like this? I wanted to, you know, I really wanted to solve the world's problems and become an ecologist. But I hadn't heard messages except Rachel Carson saying we're in trouble and ones from my lecturers who weren't giving me a solution. So I studied hard, got back into university and found out how to, how to study how to learn. And I think, you know, as scientists, that is the biggest challenge. And I got a little quote from Francis Bacon here. Francis Bacon, not the painter, but the ancient Bacon. That never any knowledge was delivered in the same order it was invented. And he goes on to expound about the nature of search and discovery and the nature of teaching and how the transmission of the two sorts of knowledge is quite different. You know, so to, to learn how to be a researcher or to learn how to be a sponge and soak up facts, quite, they are quite different. He also said, write down the thoughts of the moment. Those that come unsought for are commonly the most valuable. The thoughts that are unsought for are most valuable. So, if I was giving a talk title today, I came up with Purpose, Passion, and Paradigms. I think all of us as scientists or as individuals, we, you know, we do seek some sort of purpose. 
and we have a passion for that. That's how we pursue it. And we pursue that in the context of certain paradigms. And as we go through life, that changes as we can counter other folks' paradigms or there's new, 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 new things come along. But to mirror Francis Bacon, my subtitle is Staring Vacantly Into Space is Also a Valid Research Activity. <laughs> I've actually spent a lot of time doing this and even tried to get it put onto our log of activities at the department when I first joined it 12 years ago because I found I was unable to account for the quarter hour or half hour blocks against all, all the projects I was supposed to be working on. I didn't actually seem to be achieving anything in that space, but by staring vacantly into space, there were things that came to me, thoughts came to me, and that was, that was quite good. So, from there, I encountered a, a couple of people who I would say, yes, I would genuinely count them as heroes, and I brought my Bible. This is a book written in 1969 by a landscape architect from Glasgow who became a lecturer in Philadelphia. His name is Ian McHarg. And if you have not come across his writings and you're at all involved in geography, spatial science, GIS, ecology, social planning, urban planning, I really exhort you to read this because not only did he express things in a very holistic and passionate way, in times almost mystical way, he also provided a methodology to sort out problems. He sorted our methodology for solutions, spatial solutions to questions of freeways or, or social problems. And he did this by uh, applying values to the landscape and researching those from the people who knew. So what was the ecological values, the hydrological values, the social values? Where was disease most prevalent? And he would map these and use a series of overlays in scales of gray on transparency and, and lay them one on another until you found the optimal route for a highway, for example. But I just want to read you something that he said about this book. I can get this paper here. Because these are great words. Now, people have said things well. I think they're worth repeating. This book is a personal testament to the power and importance of sun, moon, and stars, the changing seasons, seed time and harvest, clouds, rain, and rivers, the oceans and the forests, the creatures and the herbs. They are with us now, co-tenants of the phenomenal universe participating in that timeless yearning that is evolution, vivid expression of time past, essential partners in survival, and with us now involved in the creation of the future. And one thing that has really struck me for the rest of my life and led me to read other literature is this, because, and I think, many of you should be able to identify with this. We're all individuals in this world and we sit looking at the rest of the diversity with some various degrees of separation. What Ian McHarg wrote was, our eyes do not divide us from the world, but unite us with it. Let this be known to be true. 
Let us then abandon the simplicity of separation and give unity its due. Let us abandon the self-mutilation which has been our way and give expression to the potential harmony of man-nature. The world is abundant. We require only a deference born of understanding to, fill man's, to fulfill man's promise. Man is that uniquely conscious creature who can perceive and express. He must become the steward of the biosphere. To do this, he must design with nature. And this is what he set out to do in this book with lots of examples showing that it actually can be done. Another person I encountered during those early years, and I think it's interesting to reflect, most of the things that have really influenced me I was somewhere between the age of 19 and 23. And they've been really powerful influences. I haven't learned much since. And that is uh, Buckminster Fuller. I mean, Buckminster Fuller he was a great generalist and futurist, and he put a lot of this down to being long-sighted. He couldn't see things close up, and they didn't discover this until he was quite old. He sort of walked around, all the details were blurred, but he developed this view of the, of the, of the world that was, was fairly big picture. Um, he had some really nutty ideas, too, and I think that's why it's difficult to pick on a particular hero. He believed that humans started out as aliens that were put into the Pacific Atoll, and from there they diffused into the rest of the world, and that dolphins evolved from humans who spent a lot of time in the water, and that apes were evolved from people who were not very bright, who were a bit dumb. But it's best not to dwell on these. Because he was very simple in his, in his explanations of things. And I remember seeing him do this once. Saying, nature is never caught out. Oh, so there are some things, there was gravity. A nice demonstration you can take. Unlike, there was a poem I read once, the, the um, sudden prayers make God jump. He also said, and this is one you probably have heard, the Earth is like a spaceship, but it didn't come with an operating manual. <laughs> and that sort of stuck with me and thinking, well, if it is a spaceship and we're the crew, who's in control and where does he want to go? And that's, that's a question worth asking, you know, it's one that <laughs> it has purpose. But how to think about that, how to develop an approach that's actually going to find any kind of answer to that question is going to lead you into a space that is not terribly scientific. In fact, most of the things I'm talking about tonight are probably not very scientific. Science is about replicating some experiments. Well, I stand before you as an experiment. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any chance of replicating that one, and you, and you might not want it. Now, an example of another person who, who really struck me is Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher, who came into a lot of flack because of apparent associations with the Nazi party were later disproven. But echoing the, um, the thing of Francis Bacon, of writing the thoughts that, that come to you, we never come to thoughts, they come to us. 
That is the proper hour of discourse. Discourse cheers us to companionable reflection. Such reflection neither parades polemical opinion, nor does it tolerate complacent agreement. The sail of thinking keeps trimmed hard to the wind of the matter. From such companionship, a few perhaps may rise to be journeymen in the craft of thinking, so that one of them, unforeseen, may become a master. I found that a really challenging thing. If you try to think, you know, you have to try and think against yourself some, somehow. It's very, you fall into, to think new things. How do you think new things when you only have your old patterns? And as scientists, we stand on each other's shoulders, building ideas on other people's ideas, usually. How often do those real new paradigms come along? And how often, when they do come along, are the people who brought them actually not really listened to or set aside or ostracized? I mean, one can think of some good examples of, for instance, uh, bacteria and ulcers example. is a classic Australian one. But he also said three dangers threaten thinking. The good and thus wholesome danger is the nineness of the singing poet. The evil and thus keenest danger is thinking itself. It must think against itself, which it can only seldom do. The bad and thus muddled danger is philosophizing. And I think I fall into the last very easily. And I can fall into the first, but that's quite wholesome, listening to poetry and reading poetry. Carl Sauer said, in trying to understand these big picture questions, the cosmos, about the cosmos, man or mankind, humankind, is the cosmos's way of knowing about itself. That's a kind of nice perspective. So several years later, when I came across the I came across this writing from the Andalusian mystic Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi, who starts off a book in this, with this particular sentence. God, al-Haq, the Arabic for reality, wanted to see the essences of his most perfect names, whose number is infinite. And if you like, you can equally, equally well say God wanted to see his own essence in one global object, which having been blessed with existence, summarized the divine order so that there he could manifest his mystery to himself. I mean, this sense that struck me, it mirrored something I'd thought of, I'd thought of it myself, as a kind of joke, you know, the great divine joke. Why are there so many religions? Why are there so many different things worshipped that are not religion? Even science is a kind of religion. The exploration, the drive to know more and more is always in, in religion and science. And here is a man who has written the first sentence of a book in which he's going to expound why this is so and how this is so. 
For the vision that a being has of himself in himself is not the same as that which another reality procures for him and which he uses for himself as a mirror. In this he manifests himself to his self in the form which results from the place of the vision. And each of us can see we are a place of vision. We are a place of consciousness. We may regard that as an individual, a separate individual, but we share in a common being, a reality, that there is only one being. We are individuated. And reality looks back on itself through us, through each of our eyes, through our search, through our discovery. So he manifests himself to his self in the form which results from the place of the vision. This would not exist without the plane of reflection, which is you, and the ray which is reflected therein, the consciousness. It's worth considering, I know the language can be a barrier, but if you think about your place in the world, your own consciousness, the things you look at, what's the reality of those things you look at, the, the person next to you, there's something worth thinking about there that doesn't actually fall much into the realm of science, but for me as a scientist, gives me meaning as, as a scientist. Because I can put all of this together in a unitive context as love, knowledge, and beauty. So there is knowledge, but it isn't only scientific knowledge. And there is love, but there is not love without knowledge. Why do you learn? What engenders the desire to learn more? And there are neither of those in partnership without beauty. And going back to Buckminster Fuller, who wasn't a particularly religious person, when I'm working on a problem, I never think about beauty. But when I've finished, when I've finished if the solution is not beautiful, I know it is wrong. So I should conclude here because I'm not even sure how long I've been going and they haven't pulled out the crook to pull me off, but there are other speakers. But just to talk about soils, how I end up in soils quite accidentally. As an ecologist, after spending 15 years studying the works of Mohidin Ibn Arabi and, and, and the pursuit that involved, I went back to, to school, back to Reading University, did my postgraduate work in soil science because ecology had passed its use-by date. And I'd visit... I visited Australia and I didn't understand the landscapes. I learned soil science and, and ecology in Scotland. So I thought, I really, if I'm going to work as an ecologist, I need to understand more about soil. I arrived in Australia with this fresh qualification in soils and applying for other kinds of jobs, but was snapped up because soils are so fundamentally important in Australia. And it's really important for all of us to recognize that. Everybody who's eaten food here tonight there's a soil narrative associated with that food that came onto your plate, but you're probably completely unaware of it. There's a soil narrative associated with the clothes that I'm wearing, with the wood that I'm standing on. And in this year of International Year of Soils, we should all celebrate soils. And I'm wearing my I Love Soil sticker on my hat. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>